the Galapagos Islands shows you what is necessary if you're going to argue for natural selection as the, the great engine of all evolution on the history of life on Earth. On the 13 islands, there are some species of finches. Each finch on each island has a different beak size, and that beak size is adapted to eating different types of food. Some of them eat big seeds, others eat little seeds. This is a bit simplistic, so you've got a series of finches, all have different beak sizes, adapted for different foodstuffs on the different islands of Galapagos. Um, and you also have a gradation of forms as well. So you have two things you need to explain phenomena in terms of Darwinism. You've got clearly adaptive forms, the beaks on the different islands are adapted to different foodstuffs, and you've got what is a gradation of beak forms as well. So you can imagine, theoretically anyway, that uh, the different beaks evolved gradually bit by bit from some ancestral uh, finch uh, uh, over the last million or so years. The problem is, that it shows you what you need <laughs> to apply uh, Darwinian ideas to macroevolution. You first of all got to show the forms were adaptive and it may well be that you've got to show that they were adaptive in ancestral forms uh, in the distant past. Generally speaking it's extremely difficult to show that a lot of the deep patterns in nature are adaptive and on top of that it's very difficult to imagine you know, sequences getting to these forms as well. If they're not adaptive, how are you going to explain them in terms of an adaptive sequence getting there? <laughs> so what the Galapagos finches tell you is that Darwinism is okay on a small scale if you have an adaptation and you can get there in small adaptive steps. But what it, what it means is to extend microevolutionary phenomena to the macro scale, you've got to show that the, the novelties you're trying to account for are really adaptive and in many cases that's extremely difficult to do and you've also and, and if that's the case then it's almost impossible I mean it's, it's, it's logically definitionally impossible to look for adaptive sequences to get there so the so that it's it's a two-edged sword Galapagos structuralism is the theory as I, as I explain in Evolution's Cellular Theory in Crisis. It's a theory which claims that a lot of the order of the biological world arises from natural law, or what the pre-Darwinian biologists called laws of form. Owen called it a polarizing force. He, he didn't understand what they were and he was, he was wildly speculating. But that's the theory, that a lot of order arises and so the biological forms are like crystals and galaxies and atoms. They're part of the changeless order of the world generated by universal laws of form. Owen said if we go to another planet, uh, we might find vertebrates. The same basic design. At the, end, at the end of On the Nature of Limbs, he speculates, well, th there will be vertebrates on other planets. In other words, on other planets, the same laws of form, the same laws of nature will generate the same forms of life we see on Earth. So that's it. it's the idea, it goes back to Aristotle's forms, that the biological world consists at its base of a series of what one called primal patterns, or basic forms generated by laws of form in nature. So that's structuralism. It doesn't say that all the order, it, it's not explaining all the order of the biological world, it doesn't explain adaptation 
It's, it's an attempt to explain the bioplans, the basic plans, why we have insects, why we have vertebrates and things like this. The basic underlying patterns which uh, underlie the basic taxa in the world. You know. Structuralism is compatible with uh, notions of intelligent design because the, the laws of form are part of the, the laws of nature and we know from cosmology and astrophysics that the laws of nature are clearly fine-tuned to an extraordinary degree for life on Earth. And I think it's not a, it's not a secret that a great number of cosmologists have said, well, this fine-tuning uh, gives an impression of design. So the laws of form biology, in fact, for instance, Owen was a, was a, was a very uh, serious Christian in his beliefs about things, and he, he, he saw the laws of form as part of the, the laws of God and God, God's designs imposed in nature itself. So I think it's absolutely compatible with, with intelligent design theories. Ornate mathematical patterns. Lavish design. Exquisite detail. Nature surpasses even the most talented artists in her extravagant beauty, richness and deep order. Her forms are marked by an overabundance that cannot be reduced to mere utility. But can such order and beauty be explained by Darwinian evolution? And if it can't, what does that mean for our understanding of nature? Opulent architecture. Intricate fugues and symphonies. Dramatic art. The Baroque era, spanning the 17th century and half of the 18th century, was so characterized by florid excess that the word came to be synonymous with extravagance. Pure functionality faded to the background and layers of gratuitous beauty and stunningly detailed design defined music, art and architecture. The great architects of the period didn't just build with their sites focused on function. The designers of Versailles or St. Paul's Cathedral were aiming to create something beautiful, something sublime. The opposite approach is to create structures that are purely functional, with no emphasis on beauty or taste. The German Bauhaus movement and its modernist architecture is one example. Industrial design is another. So is life under Darwinian evolution. Darwinism is, at its core, a profoundly functional mechanism. Natural selection ruthlessly eliminates from the gene pool any organism whose structures aren't useful for survival and reproduction. If a new structure is to be passed on to offspring, according to strict Darwinian theory, it must serve some new adaptive function, that is, it must be useful for survival. In the Darwinian view, beauty is at best an unintended side product, a mere whim of sexual selection. Nothing need be decorative, everything has a specific use, or it is discarded. Under Darwinism, nature is strictly utilitarian. 
For more than a century, biology has been understood in these terms. But what if this way of looking at life has blinded us to the true nature of biology? What if there are other factors at play? Geneticist Michael Denton began to wonder about the standard Darwinian explanation of nature while studying the red blood cell for his PhD at King's College in London. As he came across features in biology that did not seem to possess any particular survival benefit, Denton began to realize just how much order in biology was actually non-adaptive. He started seeing life more as a piece of Baroque artwork than as a purely functional machine. Non-adaptive order is seen in something like a maple leaf or leaf forms, where you have extraordinarily complex and beautiful patterns for which you can't imagine what function that pattern, specific function, the pattern serves. So that's what non-adaptive order is. Um, it's, it's, it's a pattern in the natural world for which you can't imagine what function it served. And that's a fantastically serious challenge to Darwinism. Imagine stepping outside on a sunny summer's day. All around you are different kinds of trees, each displaying beautiful order in their differently shaped leaves. But for Darwinian evolution to explain the shape of these leaves, or any structure in a living organism, there ought to be some reason why that specific shape caused one organism to live and another to die in a given environment. Yet there appears to be no functional reason why there are so many different leaf shapes. Much like Baroque architecture, these shapes seem extra, perhaps even decorative. They're not needed to survive. They are simply beautiful. So okay, if it's just a maple leaf, you can perhaps pass over the maple leaf. But if non-adaptive order, like the maple leaf, uh, permeates the biological world, and if a lot of the taxa-defining novelties seem to be non-adaptive, you now have a nightmarish scenario when the fundamental assumption of Darwinism is that all the novelties in nature are adaptive. Suddenly looks very insecure. Examples of non-adaptive order fill the world of botany and plant life. You can look at the beautiful concentric pattern underlying angiosperm flowers. That's all flowers belong to the group called angiosperms. The basic plan of the flower is concentric circles. You have an outer circle of sepals, then you have an inner circle of petals, then you have stamens and you have the carpel in the middle. All flowers are built on this beautiful concentric plan. But what organism was that concentric plan adaptive in? What function did that pattern of gene expression originally serve? It's exceedingly difficult to give an adaptive framework to explain that particular pattern. And if you can't show that it's adaptive, then you can't give, you can't give a Darwinian explanation for it. The abstract patterns underlying organic structures may be easier to recognize in plant life, but examples abound in the animal world as well. Many structures that seem primarily functional have, at their base, underlying plans that are not particular to certain environments. Oftentimes, these take the form of numeric patterns or constraints. 
Many of the characteristics that divide the different taxa from each other, the characteristics that are used to define the branches on the tree of life, seem to be abstract and non-adaptive. One of the most familiar patterns in animals is the insect body plan. The plan divides an insect into three parts. The head, a thorax with six legs, each divided into five basic parts, and an abdomen. Every insect is based on this plan. Many very different adaptive structures are built on top of this pattern, from the grasshopper's legs for leaping to a bee's legs for gathering pollen. But these adaptations are only skin deep, built upon a more fundamental, unchanging pattern that crosses species, environments and functions. Much like Bach's fugues, all these variations among insects are variations on a common theme. It's apparent that these variations are adaptive. But what was the original survival value of the underlying theme, the insect body plan itself? Denton's answer is that perhaps the underlying theme or body plan never was adaptive. Or perhaps it was only adaptive in a generic sense. It might have been a good ground plan to build different insect species, but even if it was a good ground plan, this would still be a paradox for Darwinism, because natural selection cannot see or select for features that merely have an underlying general usefulness. Natural selection is limited to selecting structures that are adaptive, that serve some specific purpose in a specific species and environment. The pentadactyl limb is another example of a generically adaptive structure that is hard to account for by natural selection. The pentadactyl limb is the pattern of one bone, two bones and five digits that underlies the limbs of all terrestrial vertebrates. This pattern applies both across species and within the same species. Limbs obviously have functional purposes. But much like the insect body plan, it isn't clear why all tetrapod limbs are built on the same pattern when they serve wildly different functions. Even Darwin thought it strange. What can be more curious, he wrote, than that the hand of a man, formed for grasping, that of a mole for digging, the leg of a horse, the paddle of the porpoise and the wing of the bat should all be constructed on the same pattern. Darwin shrugged off the mystery as a consequence of common descent. In Darwin's view, a biological feature shared by different organisms today could have come from a common ancestor. But descent from a common ancestor only explains how a feature, once developed, is passed down to other organisms. It doesn't explain how the feature itself arose in the first place, so it really doesn't solve the mystery of non-adaptive forms shared across species. Even less does common descent explain the existence of non-adaptive patterns in individual species. For example, the hind and forelimbs of all terrestrial vertebrates are built on the same underlying pentadactyl pattern, even though they take different forms and perform radically different functions. Consider your own limbs. The human hand is made for holding and grasping and equipped with fine motor skills. The human foot, on the other hand, is made for running and walking. Yet these two structures with completely different functions are built on the same pentadactyl plan. And this holds true for every terrestrial vertebrate species. 
How can the similarity between the two be accounted for in purely adaptive terms? Other examples of apparently non-adaptive patterns abound among animals. Why do centipedes always have an odd number of body segments? How did that help them survive? Why do nearly all mammals, from mice to giraffes, have seven bones in their cervical vertebrae? All octopi have eight tentacles. Why not six or ten? Jellyfish have a mesmerizing radial symmetry. Sand dollars and starfish both display a star-like pattern. Nature seems to have plenty of room to develop order and patterns that do not serve an immediate survival purpose. Darwinism, however, is not that flexible. It's not enough, according to Darwinian theory, that a biological feature is currently adaptive. Every stage in its past evolution also had to be adaptive. And in the case of many biological features, that seems far from likely. Denton's own area of study, the red blood cell in mammals, is a stark example. Unlike red blood cells in all other animals, the red blood cell in mammals is enucleated, ejecting its nucleus before entering the bloodstream. Enucleation takes place two million times per second in the average human adult, and it involves an elaborate and highly choreographed biological process where the entire cytoplasmic machinery of the cell is reorganized in order to achieve the end result. It's unclear whether the enucleated red blood cell is actually adaptive in a Darwinian sense. Other animals with a high need for oxygen get by perfectly well by keeping the nucleus in their red blood cells. But even if the enucleated red cell is adaptive, that doesn't mean a Darwinian process can account for its development. That's because it's very difficult to envisage a series of adaptive transitional forms leading from a red blood cell with a nucleus to a red blood cell without a nucleus. According to Denton, such transitional cells are completely unknown in nature. Moreover, even if a transitional red blood cell could somehow survive with a nucleus partway outside the cell, that trait would almost certainly be maladaptive and thus eliminated by natural selection. Such transitional forms would be evolutionary dead ends, not stepping stones on the way to the enucleated red blood cell. The lack of adaptive transitional forms poses a critical problem for Darwinian explanations of not only the enucleated red cell, but many other biological features as well. An additional challenge to Darwinian explanations comes from biological features that may be adaptive but they appear to be far beyond what is needed for mere survival. Perhaps one of the most extravagant of these biological features is one we usually take completely for granted. The level to which it has developed is so excessive it is beyond a utilitarian explanation. You are experiencing this amazing biological feature at this very moment. It's our cognitive and higher mental abilities, especially language. Language is a characteristic that defines us as a species. But as a biological development, it is completely unparalleled. While Darwinian conjectures have been proposed to explain how grunts and hand signals could have developed into speech, none of them have any real empirical evidence. 
and the sheer distance between the grunts, howls, barks and bleats of animals and human language as we know it is astronomical, if they can be fairly compared at all. Human language is so complex and nuanced that it has become impossible to simulate perfectly in even the most advanced intelligent machines, as any simple conversation with Siri will show. Human language is varied and textured, adapted to both concrete and abstract conversation across every people, group and culture. What makes human language so intriguing is not just the great variety of different languages, but their underlying similarities. Despite superficial differences, human languages share deep, structural similarities. This is why an Australian Aborigine can learn German, despite the many differences between German and the languages of the Australian Aborigines. The fact that humans, no matter what part of the world they're from, share both language and equivalent higher intellectual faculties means that these abilities must have arisen in the earliest human ancestor, and that poses a problem. The capability to compose a symphony, understand advanced mathematics or discuss abstract ideas would not have been of any survival value for early man. His needs were shelter and food. The idea primitive man needed our current linguistic or other higher intellectual abilities to survive is untenable. Nevertheless, early man must have had this capability because it was passed down to every human in every part of the world. Even today, things like art, literature or music are understood to be valuable not for survival or reproduction, but for their own sake. Such capacities reach far beyond the algorithm of natural selection. They're excessive, superfluous, even a gift. Their very existence is completely incomprehensible if humans are solely the result of Darwinian forces. The case that human language developed step by step through natural selection is further weakened by the fact that no single language gene has ever been discovered. That is, the needed complexities seem to have arisen spontaneously in a self-organizing, emergent fashion. Non-adaptive and beyond adaptive order poses an existential challenge to Darwinism because it means there are huge parts of the history of life that not only can't be explained by Darwinian evolution but they are completely outside the domain of natural selection. Natural selection only selects for adaptation. If non-adaptive order exists, Darwinism cannot be the whole story of life. If nature is an artist, not just an engineer, Darwinism is in a dire position. For a designer, lots of patterns might exist in nature, which have, as it were, are deeply adaptive, but um, not adaptive in a specific organism. On the other hand, the designer might decide that he likes this pattern, he likes the pattern of a maple leaf, or, you know, it's beautiful, or it's uh, symmetrical, or something like this. In other words, on a, on a design hypothesis, um, uh, you don't need to show that all the order of the biology of the world is specifically adapted in a specific organism. Intelligent design leaves room for nature's peculiarities and novelties because it acknowledges that there are some things that are irreducible to mere adaptation and survival. There are other forces at work in nature besides that of natural selection and death. If you imagine there's a designer behind the world, 
the designer will be free to choose whichever patterns he wants. But I think that non-adaptive order poses a far less of a challenge to intelligent design theories than it does to Darwinism. Because Darwinism necessitates that all the order of nature is adaptive or once was adaptive. And if you can't show that, Darwinism can't be shown to be the engine of evolution. The two great English, English biologists of the 19th century would be Richard Owen, the arch-structuralist, and Darwin, the arch-adaptationalist. And so they represented two totally different paradigms. Uh, Owen believed that the primal patterns in nature were the result of laws of form, and Darwin claimed these primal patterns were once adaptive in ancient organisms. So it's a completely different. He said they were adaptive things which were generated by natural selection in ancient organisms and then preserved for some reason in different lineages. So they had two entirely opposing causal explanations. Naturally, uh, Owen was um, on the outers from the Darwin camp, Huxley, uh, Lyell, Hooker and others. Um, and his, his ideas pose, of course, an exit, uh, as we perhaps discussed earlier, they pose an existential challenge to Darwin's theories. If Owen was right, Darwin is only restricted to explaining microevolutionary adapt adaptational phenomena in nature, not the basic underlying bio plans. And so necessarily, when they opened the new Darwin Center in 2009, I think it was, in, in the, it, 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 it was attached to Owen's uh, uh, museum in London, in South Kensington, the, the Natural History Museum, which Owen was the founder, actually. And he used to have his statue in a prominent place on a above a staircase. And when they opened the new Darwin Centre, they moved Owen away to a more obscure place in the museum, put Darwin's statue in the place of Owen, actually, which wonderfully symbolises the contrast between these two worldviews and what an existential threat the own conception of nature poses to the Darwinian claims that everything's the result of natural selection. It's a beautiful, beautifully symbolic thing. I was very amused when I read it. And you can do those pictures in the Times and things of moving Owen's statue. It had all these machines that are so heavy <laughs> moving these statues around just to get Owen out the way. <laughs> the problem is that you can move the statue, <laughs> but the challenge of laws of form and structuralism remains, of course, and uh, in my view it's starting to take traction in modern biology again. The hierarchy of nature, um, as I describe in Evolution to the Theory in Crisis, arises when you try to classify organisms into different groups. And you find that, in fact, <coughs> different groups have what are called taxa-defining novelties. Uh, mammals have a diaphragm, they have an enucleate red cell, uh, they have six layers in the cerebral cortex, um, uh, and they have other defining characteristics. And so animals that have these defining characteristics you call mammals. And then you have another group called tetrapods, which includes mammals, birds, and um, all terrestrial vertebrates. And the defining characteristic of the tetrapods is what is called the pentadactyl limb. That's the, um, 
one bone, two bones, five fingers pattern, which is present in the uh, fore and hind limbs of all terrestrial vertebrates. So nature is ordered um, into different groups, increasingly, as it were, inclusive groups. You have mammals, and then mammals are included within the tetrapods, and then, of course, tetrapods uh, and fish are, in, are included in the vertebrata. So you have um, nature seems to be organized into a, into a hierarchy of uh, ever more inclusive classes. And each class is defined by a distinct novelty or homologue depending on whether an evo-devoist or a classical systemist, um, by a defining characteristic or characteristics. And so nature, from classification, you get a hierarchy of order. What's extraordinary about it is that nearly all these defining characteristics uh, provide not the slightest evidence of how they came about in terms of any Darwinian model. Uh, nearly all of them are discrete, and that's why you can have discrete classes in nature. And that's why you have a form of classification called cladistics. Because the modern, modern cladists looks for these defining characteristics and defines classes in, in whether, whether that particular characteristic uh, is, you know, is, is possessed by all the members of the class. And so it's the fact that these novelties are homologues which define the taxa are on the whole distinct, uh, unique entities, which are not led up to by a whole whole series of sort of, you know, adaptive little, once again, we're back to the incremental adaptive steps. So that it's the distinctness and uniqueness of the novelties which define the taxa, which is such a challenge. You wouldn't expect on a Darwinian model to get so many uh, unique homologues or novelties which are not led up to anywhere. Not only are they not led up to in nature, and that's how you have distinct classes, but you can't in many cases conceive of how, theoretically, they came about. In Evolution Still a Theory in Crisis, I'm pointing out that the, there is a tree of life, I believe there is a tree of life, and I think there was common descent. But the problem is that, in fact, although you can arrange living things along the trunk and the branches, you find that, in fact, the reason why things are distinct on the branches is that they're defined. We talked about this earlier, it it's, uh, reflects. Um, the fact that the defining, the defining taxa-defining novelties, which define mammals and the various classes on the tree of life, are quite distinct. And so, although you have sort of a movement, say, within vertebrates, from sort of primitive vertebrates through amphibia, uh, through reptiles to mammals, and you can see a, an evolutionary sequence here, when you come to look at the actual defining novelties of these different classes, you can't achieve them in terms of little gradual steps. So that the reason why we have classes of organisms which are quite distinct, and the reason why we have in fact a tree of life consisting of different groups of organisms, is that the, the taxa-defining novelties which define these classes are quite distinct. I mean the enucleate red cell for instance 
is not led up to by any of anything else. And the same goes to uh, the diaphragm and other taxa-defining novelties in nature. They're not led up to in a lot in a sequence of little little tiny incremental steps. So the so the the basic taxa remain distinct, and um, that's why we have cladistic. Uh, classification systems and indeed that's why we can classify things into distinct groups anyway. I wouldn't have expected to see such distinctness and the I mean these novelties persist for hundreds of millions of years essentially without changing and that's why you can have you know that's why you can say an organism in the distant past was a mammal, an organism in the distant past was a particular type of crab or so forth because the taxidifying novelties seem to be unchanging entities in the natural world. I wouldn't have expected to see any constant patterns of that sort with Darwinism. Because if in fact everything's built up by little adaptive steps throughout time, you wouldn't expect, you would expect to see continuous change. Because nothing would have any specific, uh, nothing would be robust, you wouldn't find robust structures which persisted for such vast periods of time. You'd expect to see things, you'd expect to see not a classification system, you'd expect to see a much more chaotic system in nature. That's what I would expect from the Darwinian process. The term evo-devo means evolutionary developmental biology and it's been a huge advance. It's something which greatly intrigues me and greatly excites me in some ways. Evo-devo does powerfully support, I think, common descent. Um, because it shows that the same gene circuits, the same developmental processes, things like uh, Turing reaction type mechanisms are used universally in living systems and for instance the development of a of the of a fin of a fish and the development of a, of a tetrapod limb utilizes a lot of the same gene circuits and so they're used over and over again so I think that in fact it does suggest common descent um, however once again these developmental pathways which have been revealed and this is a great advance I have to say it just throws a very, very little light, I would argue hardly any at all, on how these pathways came about. In other words, we now know that the developmental, some of the developmental underlying pathways behind the limb. But then if that's just pushing back the problem into, the, into a more distant past. You now have to, if you want to give a fully Darwinian explanation for these underlying patterns which generate the homologies in nature, you've got to show that these things are adaptive, these patterns are adaptive, and some of them are extraordinarily difficult to explain in those sorts of terms. I'll give you an example. Um, there is a developmental module, one of these um, revealed by Evo Devo studies, which shows that the, the size of the phalanxes in, in, in the finger uh, decrease uh, as you go from a proximal to a distal direction. In other words, if you look at your own fingers, you can see that the bones are getting increasingly smaller. This is a conserved developmental uh, pathway, right? And you can, and you know how it is done? It's done because 
the, the proximal segment of the finger represses the growth of the, of the successive one and so forth down the finger. This is a re recently purported and proceeded in the National Academy of Science. But certainly trying to en envisage how such a developmental module was put together for some adaptive significance is fantastically difficult. Not just one example of the sort of revelations of Evo Devo. Evo Devo supports common descent, but it throws no, it provides no additional evidence, no evidence at all for the, the Darwinian adaptational framework. Non-adaptive order is seen in something like a maple leaf or leaf forms where you have extraordinarily complex and beautiful patterns for which you can't imagine what function that pattern, specific function, the pattern serves. And that's a fantastically serious challenge to Darwinism. So okay if it's just a maple leaf, you can perhaps pass over the maple leaf, but if non-adaptive order, like the maple leaf, uh, permeates the biological world, and if a lot of the taxa-defining novelties seem to be non-adaptive, you now have a nightmarish scenario when the fundamental assumption of Darwinism is that all the novelties in nature are adaptive. Suddenly looks very insecure. Or you can look at the, the beautiful concentric pattern underlying angiosperm flowers. That's all flowers belong to the group called angiosperms. And the basic plan of the flower is concentric circles. You have an outer circle of sepals, then you have an inner circle of petals, then you have stamens and you have the carpel in the middle. And so you have all flowers are built on this beautiful concentric plan. But what organism was that concentric plan adaptive in? What function did that pattern of gene expression originally serve? It's exceedingly difficult to give an adaptive framework in which that, you know, to explain that particular pattern. And if, that's, if you can't show that it's adaptive, then you can't, give a, you can't give a Darwinian explanation for it. And this goes on and on and on, the centipede segment levels, uh, then there's the pentadactyl pattern of, of, of the, the, vertebrate, the vertebrate limb. The same problem occurs there. You can't actually give an adaptive explanation of why, for instance, the same pattern underlies the hind and the forelimbs, because in no adult terrestrial uh, tetrapod, uh, terrestrial vertebrate, is the hind limb and the forelimb of the same form, it's adaptive form. In other words, it's always different. In every single adult tetrapod, the actual, the actual structure, like in humans, the, the fore and hind limb have a completely different structure. So how come the identical set of patterns, an identical pattern, underlies both these limbs. It's, it's very difficult to see how that could be adaptive. And so you've got to find an organism in which uh, identical, identical fore and hind limbs existed to give a fully adaptive explanation of how that pattern was sort of incorporated into the tetrapod body plan. And I don't think you can do it. They've assumed that paradigm, the panadaptational paradigm, and they've built a causal explanation of evolution, assuming that that, part, that fundamental assumption is correct. I deny that assumption, and I believe it can't be proven in general to any degree in nature. 
I think there's almost certainly a vast amount of order which is not adaptive in any specific organism and never was adaptive in any particular organism. And I defy my Darwinian critics to show that it was. If there does exist a lot of non-adaptive order and patterns and patterns without a purpose, as you put it, uh, that's a much bigger challenge for Darwinism. It's an existential challenge for Darwinism, but it's not an existential challenge for somebody who wants to believe in intelligent design. It might turn out uh, that, um, for instance, the pentadactyl pattern is the best pattern to build tetrapod limbs on, right? And you might say, well, Wow, you're going back to an adaptive explanation for it, but not really because in fact um, it's not adaptive in any specific organism. It's an underlying sort of uh, adaptive pattern in nature. For instance, it could be that for some reason this particular pattern is beautifully adapted for building tetrapod limbs. But that doesn't, that doesn't get Darwinism off the hook because you've got to show why that pattern was adaptive in a specific organism in a specific environment. If you imagine there's a designer behind the world, the designer would be free to choose whichever patterns he wants and may well choose uh, ad adaptive structures uh, to, uh, as, the, as the basis for building very, like limbs and, and various other uh, biological uh, structures. But these may not be adaptive in any specific species at any specific time. They're sort of generically adaptive. But what Darwin needs is them to be adaptive at a specific time in a specific organism. But I think that non-adaptive order poses a far less of a challenge to intelligent design theories than it does to Darwinism. Because Darwinism necessitates that all the order of nature is adaptive or once was adaptive. And if you can't show that, Darwinism can't be shown to be the engine of evolution.